This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration's goals for diversity and equity in the federal workforce are more difficult to achieve in some fields than in others. Data from the Office of Personnel Management and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission show the cyber workforce ranks among the least diverse segments of the federal government, and agencies can't simply hire their way to a more diverse cyber workforce. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has looked into this, and he joins me with more. And Jory, what is the diversity of the cyber workforce compared to the rest of the government? Are there numbers for that? There are some numbers in this case, but we are looking at this in terms of some pretty broad strokes. Um to give you a sense of where things stand with the diversity of the cyber workforce, women and people of color generally hold IT leadership positions at a lower rate than other leadership positions across the federal workforce. And women occupy a smaller percentage of federal IT jobs than they do across the federal workforce. To give you a sense of that, women make up about half of the federal workforce, coming in at 45%, but they make, but they make up about 30% of the IT workforce. And the reason why we're framing it this way as IT workforce compared to the cyber workforce is that we don't have that level of granularity with the data. The Office of Personal Management categorizes IT jobs, but it doesn't drill down deeper into cybersecurity. It's part of IT, but it, it, there are some obvious uh, differences in cases where you'd want to drill down into that demographic data a little more. We heard from Dexter Brooks, who is the Associate Director of the Office of Federal Operations over at EEOC, and he says that this kind of data should always be the starting point for doing this kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion work and conducting what he calls barrier analysis, so looking at who agencies are hiring, who they are promoting within cyber jobs, as well as who is leaving the federal cyber workforce and acting accordingly from those data points. But it can be hard to do that if you don't have cyber workforce-specific data. And Brooks says it can be even hard to get an accurate headcount of how many federal employees even work in cyber jobs. So if I want to slice and dice the data and I want to say, tell me how many cyber employees there are, it's not as easy as I I can tell you how many IT specialists, I can tell you how many criminal investigators there are in the federal government. I can tell you how many astronauts are in the federal government, but I can't give you a clear picture of within the IT family, how many folks are cyber. That's an interesting observation. So the question then is, is there a career path for cyber talent in the government in the first place? No, that's kind of the problem here, too, is that civilian agencies across the board are kind of struggling to offer employees a structured career trajectory. And Brooks says it's a very similar problem to what the federal government encountered decades ago with the advent of IT specialist positions. You would have, you know, people who put the phones in at offices and suddenly the next day they are the the head of IT for this agency and they didn't quite know how the computers work. They didn't have a computer science background because computer science degrees were not as common back then. And same kind of deal we're seeing cybersecurity certificates and degrees being offered up more, but it can really be hard for the federal government to catch up with that. To add to the problem here, Brooks says that there are proportionately fewer entry-level positions in federal IT, and so you can't really work your way up the ranks uh, the way that you can in the Defense Department, which has an internal training culture that you can start you know, at one point and work your way up a career path as long as you have the foundational minimum qualifications. You know, the armed services are really good at under identifying those core competencies and those aptitudes and figuring out where you can go from there. 
Well, you can't get diversity until you get people to apply and then hire them. So that leads to the next question, Jory, and what are agencies doing to hire and recruit cyber talent? A couple new exciting developments there. The Department of Homeland Security last year launched their long-awaited cyber talent management system. People who are hired through that system will see a different career path, benefits, and salaries compared to their colleagues who are brought on through the general schedule pay scale. Uh, It's seen as a way to really overcome some entrenched recruitment and retention challenges. Another way to look at this, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency last year also launched its neurodiversity pilot program, which is looking to recruit employees on the autism spectrum out of a recognition that they generally might have these kinds of aptitudes to take on cyber work. And, you know, across the board here, the Office of Management and Budget more broadly is trying to get federal employees to consider reskilling into cyber opportunities, even if they don't have a cyber background. Back in 2018, OMB launched the Federal Cyber Reskilling Academy, and we've seen at least two cohorts of federal employees graduate from that. As far as what the future holds, we heard from the director of OPM's Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility, Rita Sampson. She says that by and large, agencies should really maximize this opportunity to upskill the employees that they already have. Within our workforce, we have already hired some highly talented uh, individuals, and perhaps it's time for them to retool and reskill. So we want to be able to invest internally to make sure that we are reaching our goals and that um, the talent that is out there may perhaps decide that cybersecurity is an area that they want to study. So we want to be able to give them the ability uh, to do just that. So it sounds like agencies can't simply just go out and hire a diverse pool of employees in such a specialized field like this, correct, Jory? Well, they could, and the data for a year or two or three would look good. But as far as the retention piece of things, you would most likely see those people leave just as quickly as they came in. And so that's the challenge here is that Brooks is saying without that data on the cyber workforce specifically, you can't do those barrier assessments, as he calls them, understand why people leave the agency, uh, why they don't apply in the first place. And without addressing those root causes, he says you're really kind of just, you know, cutting the weeds down as opposed to pulling them up by the roots. That's what people always think. Oh, well, we see fewer women in cyber positions. Let's just go out and hire more women without figuring out or solving the problem as to why we have fewer women in cyber. What is the uh, what is the origin of that? And are there policies, practices, or procedures in place that facilitate that lack of inclusion? And it could be that the issue is upstream of where the government is, and that is, are enough women going into STEM fields and graduating and having the desire to be in cyber so that you have the pool to hire from. And that's a little bit out of the government's range, but it can do things to encourage that, I suppose. Yeah, agencies are mindful that you know, this doesn't happen in a vacuum, and they are offering some K-12 through programs and some college programs to make sure that that pipeline of talent is going all the way through and not just thinking of this at the application stage. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity. 
and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective about my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. 
Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.